Hi everyone, thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Ms. Giovanna Portia with us. Giovanna was a passenger in a car accident in the spring of 2016 that led to a visit to the ER where a mass on her left lung was discovered during examination. At 35, living a pretty active lifestyle and without any major health ailments, Giovanna was shocked when she heard her diagnosis of stage 1B mucinous adenocarcinoma, non-small cell lung cancer. Giovanna is now a strong advocate for lung cancer, hoping to end the stigma associated with the disease, increase research funding, and raise awareness that lung cancer can happen to anyone. All you need is lungs. She's joining us today with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative to share her story. Giovanna, thank you so much for your time and willingness to be here with us. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited. We are so <laughs> Thank you, we are too. Um, and before we continue, we want to launch a quick poll to get a feel of the audience we have today. Um, we have two questions that ask how much you know about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So I'll launch the poll and if everyone can take a couple of minutes to fill it out, that would be great. Okay, it looks like we are getting a lot of responses. So I'll go ahead and end the poll in a couple of seconds. Okay, so I've shared the results and it looks like we have um, a mix of people here on the call today. Uh, some people know a lot about lung cancer, lung cancer screening, while the majority of people um, seem to know a little bit about both topics. So um, it's great to, great to see that people have at least heard of of both lung cancer and lung cancer screening and hopefully through this podcast and the questions that we'll cover, um, we'll all be able to learn more about both of these topics. And just to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka Senthal and with me I have Anishko Gilam, Drake Long, and Vasu Patel. And we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative or ALSI for short. And for those who might not be familiar with our organization, I have a couple of slides to talk more about who we are. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We are a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. 
Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. We believe that educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 120 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. Over the last year, we worked with 105 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And we've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who is a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and the Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Primavera, to increase awareness of lung cancer screening. And in addition to our education, outreach, and adv advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. Elsie has also worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2020, the Senate resolution was passed with unanimous consent, marking the first time the U.S. Senate has ever recognized the importance of screening. Elsie has also actively been working with Representative Brendan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. Lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan. This scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. And right now they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80, who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are current or former smokers who quit within the past 15 years, get annual low-dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, so therefore, 20 pack years can be met in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to that quick presentation. And without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a few questions um, prepared for Yovana, but we will also have a Q&A session at the end where you can all submit any questions you have for her. And this podcast is being recorded and will be shared on our Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. So first off, Yovana, could you please introduce yourself and share your background? Sure. Um, so my name is Giovanna Portillo. I'm um, a native to Arizona. I was born and raised. I recently left the state, but <clears throat> I was living my life mid-30s and I happened to be in a motor vehicle accident. I was the passenger 
And um, I, I went to the ER just to get checked out. I had whiplash from the seatbelt and my neck kind of hurt. Um, so I went to the ER and they told me I didn't have any broken bones, that it looked like it was just soft tissue damage, but they did discover there was a mass on my left lung that I might want to get checked out. Like I mentioned, um, I am a native to Arizona and um, valley fever, which is that fungal lung, a lung fungal infection is pretty common in the desert region. And so when I met with my primary, the accident happened on a Saturday. So Monday morning, I'm calling my primary. I'm like, I was in a car accident. Um, there's something on my lung. <laughs> there's something on my lung. We need to figure out what it is. So I met with my primary Monday and then um, I was referred to a pulmonologist. As a new patient to any specialty field, um, it can take a few months to be seen. So it took me a couple months to see the pulmonologist. So for about two months in my head, I'm like, what's on my lung? I'm trying to keep on living my life, right? Um, but uh, there's that little reminder, there's something on my lung, I wonder what it is. I was tested for valley fever that came back negative. And by the time I saw the pulmonologist uh, two months later, she said because of the location of the, the mass, um, there was nothing she could do. But she did, before she referred me to a thoracic surgeon, she did do a lung capacity test in the office and then uh, requested that I have a PET scan completed as well. So I had these procedures done prior to meeting with a thoracic surgeon. A meeting with a thoracic surgeon did not take quite as long. It took a few weeks for me to be seen. And when I met with her, um, she stated she would present my case to the tumor board. The PET scan had shown some activity. Um, they, she was gonna discuss it with the tumor board and see how to proceed. When she came back, she informed me that the tumor board had decided that I should probably have a CT guided biopsy. So I underwent a CT guided biopsy. And that is when the result came back that they were indeed cancerous cells that were making up this mass in my lung. And so this was July 5th of 2016. Of course, these dates are now like kind of Kind of like your birthday they become dates that you, you don't forget so july 5th 2016 i was um diagnosed with lung cancer uh a week at that point i was living about two hours away from the city um and i had purposely when i was in the car accident i was in the phoenix metro area and i had purposely decided to keep my doctors within the bigger area i didn't want I don't want to be seen or treated at a community hospital in a more rural area where I was residing. So I was making the commute into the city to be seen by the specialists and the doctors. And um, once I met with the thoracic surgeon, um, she suggested <laughs> surgery. Um, I asked her, this was like July 13th. So it was a week after I had gotten, I got my diagnosis over the phone because I was two hours away from where the doctor was located. When I met with her in person on the 13th of July, she, um, she said 
the tumor board was recommending surgery. And I'm not one to make a decision on the spot. I like to do my research and figure it out. So I did ask her how long I had to think about it because of course, lung cancer, lung cancer diagnosis was not on my schedule. I like to, I have my agenda, I schedule my life and there was no room for a lung cancer diagnosis or a lung cancer or a lung surgery, period. So I was like, how much time do I have to think about it? And she told me, um, she said, you know, take, take a month, take two, go get a second opinion. Go get a second opinion if you'd like. Um, don't take more than two months because we don't know how aggressive it is. We don't, we don't know if it's spreading or if it's contained. So don't take more than two months. And I don't know, I think, um, her confidence or just like her suggesting like getting that second opinion gave me the confidence in her and I was like you know what let's let's do it let's schedule surgery so surgery was scheduled for a week later I had surgery and um I I remember the morning of procedure she had asked if I wanted to have a port put in when you come into the cancer world as a patient, as an advocate, as a caregiver, you're kind of thrown into this terminology. You learn a new language. And so I was learning the cancer language at that point. Um, I, I did not know what a port was. I did not know what a port was for. My aunt happened to be with me that morning and she said, yes, if she needs it, Yes, it's better that they do it while you're under. And I was like, okay. And um, Dr. Wong, the doctor said, okay, well, well, we'll play by ear. We'll see how it is. And if you need it, we'll put it. And if you don't need it, we won't put it. And so I went into surgery. And um, when I came out of surgery, I was told that it was stage one. They had removed the lower lobe of my left lung. My lymph nodes had tested um, clear, the clear margins, and um, that it looked to have been a pretty successful surgery. And this was July. <laughs> it was still in July. It was still in the summer of 2016. Um, prior to my surgery, I had informed my again, mid-30s, work, working full-time. I had informed my HR very naively that I had just been diagnosed with lung cancer and I was gonna take about two weeks off. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have lung surgery, I'm gonna take two weeks off, I'll be back to work. My HR told me, um, you take as much time as you need. And of course, after surgery, two weeks after surgery, I was not ready to go back to work. So. Um, it took me about nine weeks to be ready emotionally, physically, mentally to go back to work after my surgery. In the interim, um, I, I was referred to see an oncologist and the oncologist, I informed the oncologist. I was like, I'm, I'm 35, not married, don't have children. I would like to get married and have children at some point, but um, whatever I need to do, I want to live, right? So if I need to do A, B, C, and D, I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. And the oncologist told me that I was kind of like in a gray area. So with my diagnosis, I was stage 1B. 
Stage 1A um, doesn't do any adjuvant therapies. Stage 2A does do adjuvant therapies. And so I was right in the middle and he said, given my circumstance in life, um, he thought that having chemo or radiation would be more harmful than beneficial for me specifically at that point in my life. On that, I would just be under observance pretty much um, for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so he did refer me to get genetic testing done because I had siblings around my age. And he said, if it's genetic, then we need to test your siblings. And so genetic um, testing came back. My lung cancer was not genetic. Um, I did find mutations for different types of cancers, which now I'm also observing, just trying to be proactive on that end. But um, I started off with CT scans every three months. I graduated to every six months. And then eventually I graduated to the yearly CT scan, which is where I'm at at this point. Um, a year after my diagnosis, my surgery and everything, is kind of when I delved into the advocacy role. And I'm not sure where I should stop and, or if I should continue. You guys let me know. No, that's, that's great so far. Um... But you mentioned earlier that you found out about your diagnosis over the phone. I mean, I can't even imagine the shock and surprise of hearing the words you have lung cancer um, over the phone. So what was the experience like when you received your lung cancer diagnosis and what was going through your mind at that time? So there was a little bit of denial. Um, and part of it was that my surgeon said, you have cancerous cells. And so in my head, I didn't want to equate cancer cells to lung cancer. And so I had um, messaged my sister as soon as I got off the phone with the surgeon. I was like, okay, she called, these are the results. And I'm a pretty sensitive, emotional person by nature. And so my sister was like, do you wanna talk? Do you wanna FaceTime? And I was like, no, cause I'm probably gonna break down crying. I'm like, let me just, get back to work, focus on work, and kind of distract myself from that shocking news. Um, my doctor is pretty sympathetic, and I could hear her heart breaking just giving me the news over the phone. Um, I've developed a very um, personal and close relationship with my doctor. I mean, um, I, I got married earlier this year and she was invited to my wedding. I'm like, she's been a part of my life for the last five plus years. So, um, but even when she gave me the diagnosis or told me I had cancer cells, like I could feel um, her as a human person on the other end and not just them. a clinician per se. Um, and it wasn't until I met with her the week later in person and I got the little pamphlet that said, what do you do after a lung cancer diagnosis? That I was like, okay, so this is this is real. Even though I had kind of Googled cancer cells in your lung, uh, that Google had told me it was, <laughs> it was lung cancer too. But yeah, I think the shock and especially because I felt like I had followed all the rules, you know, in elementary school, you're taught 
don't smoke, you'll get, you'll get cancer. You'll get lung cancer specifically is what I remember, remember from um, my younger days in elementary school. And so I thought I followed the rules. I did not smoke, I did not do drugs, I did not eat BC and key. And then I end up with a lung cancer diagnosis. I found it a little bit comical because somebody I had dated and been in a relationship with previously had smoked. And I used to tell him all the time, you need to quit smoking. You might end up with lung cancer. And um, then I ended up with lung cancer. And, um, I found it a little bit comical, but at this point, at this point, I've come to realize that um, all you need is lungs. And I, I had lungs, you know, so anybody's a candidate for lung cancer, unfortunately. I think that's a really important point that you bring up, Yovana, because um, a lot of people are surprised to hear that lung cancer can happen in those who don't smoke. And it's actually quite a big proportion of those diagnosed with lung cancer who are never smokers. And right now the statistic is about 10 to 20% of those um, diagnosed with lung cancer are never smokers, meaning they have never smoked in their life or smoked less than 100 cigarettes in their lifetime. And so um, I think it's really important that we raise awareness that you don't have to be a smoker to get lung cancer. And just like you said, anyone with lungs can get lung cancer and no one deserves it as the White Ribbon Project likes to say. And I think that's a great, great phrase. But um, yeah, and in the in our presentation, we touched upon this a little bit, but I think it's worth emphasizing that there are other risk factors for lung cancer, both genetic as, as well as environmental. So exposure to radon, exposure to asbestos, um, a family history of lung cancer, these are all risk factors. And there are certain geographical regions where um, families are more likely to have been exposed to radon through um, just based on where their house is located and the soil, um, radon exposure from the soil. And so I think that these are all really important things that we start to educate people about. And, I, and you mentioned that you're a strong advocate um, for lung cancer and removing the stigma that is associated with the disease. And I think the stigma that unfortunately exists is that um, if someone is diagnosed with lung cancer, they must have been a smoker and somehow it they kind of inflicted this disease upon themselves when it really is not the case. And unfortunately, this association between smoking and lung cancer, I think for, for some individuals might have even discouraged them from seeking lung cancer screening or treatment because um, there aren't as many supporters for lung cancer, um, lung cancer patients as there are for other cancers. Um, like breast or cervical or colon cancer, I think we really, we really need to start to build this community um, around lung cancer because when when someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, the, their first question is, you know, um, you know, how did you get breast cancer? Whereas for a lot of patients that pulled us at when they tell someone that they have lung cancer, the first question they they get is, um, oh, I didn't know you were a smoker or or something along those lines. And I think um, it's just so important that we we start to move away from that stigma and education is, is probably one of the key aspects in, in, um, in, in moving away from that. Yes, yes, education is key. Um, I, I have been a victim of uh, similar stereotypes where people have said, you don't look like a smoker. And I'm like, that's because I'm not, I'm not a smoker. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter if you smoked or if you didn't, if you end up with uh, 
lung cancer, you should be afforded the same rights and treatments as any other cancer. You mentioned earlier that you assumed that after your procedure, you would be going back to work in like two weeks. And then, you know, as life turned out, it it extended out to nine weeks. So it's obviously a change that you didn't expect because it's something that you've never experienced, obviously. So could you just touch upon how exactly your life did change after a diagnosis and just talk about like the mental, emotional, physical implications of receiving that diagnosis. Yes. So yes, um, very naively, I thought I had never had any real major surgery before. I had had my wisdom teeth removed. I had had my tonsils removed, but those were like outpatient procedures. Um, so thinking that I could go back to work in two weeks was, um, I don't know what I was thinking. My HR knew better, apparently. I had done two half marathons, six, well, one half marathon six months before my surgery. Um, I was an avid hiker. There was a lot of hiking spots in Arizona. I was practicing yoga on a regular basis. So I was really um, active physically. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to have surgery, but I'm going to be able to jump back to the life that I had before my surgery is what I thought. Um, I had already, before surgery, before my diagnosis, I had already signed up for my third um, half marathon. And I had planned on starting, I had planned on starting to train for it that fall. And I did, I started training for it in October. So that was about three, four months after my surgery. And when I saw my <laughs> oncologist, uh, later that month, I was like, you know, my lung is really sore on um, what can I do to make sure that it's not this sore? And he was like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I started training for my half marathon that I have in January. And he was like, and even the oncology nurse was like, um, it's okay. You need to stop. They're like, you need to um, let your body heal your body cannot bounce back from a lung surgery and be to where you were previously. So you need to allow your body to time to heal. And he kind of sidelined me and he was like, for a year, he's like a year, for a year, you can't be as active as you were. And so I was really looking forward to July of 2017, because then I could go back to hiking and then I could go back to running. But since I had already signed up for this um, half marathon, I asked him, I said, I'm already registered. Fine, I, I won't run it. Um, can I walk it? Is it okay for me to walk 13.1 miles? And he's like, he looked at me, he kind of laughed a little and he was like, sure, you can walk it. So less than six months after my lung cancer surgery, I walked 13.1 um, miles and completed my third official half uh, marathon. Um, and so similar with yoga, I had started going to um, the cancer sport community Arizona and they were offering a gentle yoga. And I was like, oh, I've been doing yoga since 2011. I'm good. And <laughs> when the 
yoga facilitator was like, okay, hold your breath, count to eight, release, count to eight. I was, um, after the class, after the session, I walked up to her and I said, I, ha I said, I had lung surgery three weeks ago and I cannot hold my breath for eight counts. And she was like, honey, give yourself some grace. You just told me you had lung surgery. You hold the count to however long you can. You have to be kind to yourself is what she told me. And that's something that still keeps true to me today. So it's like, sometimes I forget um, I'm missing part of a lobe. <laughs> I'm missing part of a lung. Um, as odd as that may sound, living my day to day, I can forget that I've had lung surgery, that I had a lung cancer diagnosis. And I think that's just part of my personality where yes, when, when I go give something, I give it my all. But um, it was a huge adjustment those first few months, that first year, I mean, walking around my neighborhood, which was like a mile perimeter, uh, would take me like 45 minutes. And I was like, I just ran 13 miles six months ago. Like what's what's wrong with my body? Um, and I was like disappointed that my body didn't bounce back as fast as I wanted it to. And then I just had to kind of learn to scale back and modify. So I've learned to modify the way I live, what I do. I'm like the queen of modification now. So yoga poses, I can give you all the modifications you'd like. If I'm hiking, maybe my pace might be a little bit slower than the other hikers. And if I'm if I'm running, I might it might be a walk, jog, run type of race. Um, I mean, I get out there and I still do it, but at a modified. Um, and I realized that I'll never be able to go back to the person or to the body I had prior to the diagnosis or prior to the surgery. And that's okay, because I'm still here. I'm still living a pretty full life all around. And um, I, I feel very, very blessed overall. Uh, it is really amazing to see your motivation, uh, how to like, how you wanted to get back to your old life before the diagnosis. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you received uh, genetic testing. In uh, so, in your eyes, how critical is genetic genetic testing in advancing like lung cancer screening and research? Well, I think it would definitely it would go hand in hand because if genetic testing what were offered across the board and a mutation came back for any type of cancer but for lung cancer specifically then yes if we had like the the initiative uh, the resources to do these lung cancer screenings at an earlier stage then you would be able to see more survivors like me earlier stage that could live a more fulfilling life longer term Whereas, unfortunately, there isn't. Unfortunately, when comparing it to other cancers, we do not have this screening available across the board. Like when you reach a certain age, women are encouraged to get mammograms. When you reach a certain age, you get uh, colostomy. And so 
if there was something, if we could incorporate, if we could get um, <laughs> the country to provide our medical um, insurances to provide genetic screening at a younger age, um, being able to catch these cancers at earlier stages would be definitely the goal. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think what research is showing is that um, younger individuals diagnosed with lung cancer are getting genetic testing more. And, and before it wasn't um, it wasn't offered, and it's still not standardized and offered um, by all oncologists, but it is offered um, at a lot of times. And so for especially younger individuals who do get genetic testing and find that they do have a genetic mutation, it opens up a lot of doors for target therapies that has really improved survival for, um, for patients. So I think especially for individuals diagnosed at a younger um, age, as well as, you know, any individual um, who might be a good candidate for genetic testing. I think it, it opens up a lot of doors. I think and there are not too many, um, too many cons to, uh, with, that come with genetic testing, but a lot of pros if, we, if, the, if there are any genetic mutations that are found. So I definitely agree. And so if you feel comfortable sharing, uh, did you experience any complications or side effects following the surgery? And I just, just wanted to ask um, what that, uh, what it was like to undergo the surgery? Well, the worst pain I've ever felt in my life was the removal of the chest tubes. Um, <laughs> and I had two of them, so the first and I feel like I have a pretty high uh, tolerance for pain <laughs> but the removal of those chest tubes proved otherwise um like I, I stated before the I think I don't I wouldn't say there were complications it was just that the pain factor was different for me and just um having the neuropathy where I couldn't feel a portion of my torso for um years actually um, and then I was just told, you know, that's just the, your new normal. And um, when I did start to feel portions of it again, years after surgery, I was like, oh, okay. The sensation isn't told, completely gone. It was just kind of lost there for um, the blink of a couple of years. Um, so I think for me, it was a loss of independence <laughs> because the medications that I was put on after the surgery, which were like muscle relaxers and um, pain relievers, um, didn't allow me to drive myself. <laughs> and so then I had to rely on family and friends. And I think that was probably the worst of it for me was losing my independence and um, needing to ask for help where I was used to being the one that helped and so not having that coordinating maybe my dad would drop me off my sister would pick me up or my cousin would come or a friend would drive by so it was a little bit of a loss of independence for those um, like three months after surgery where I could not just get my keys and drive myself somewhere um, I had to rely on, uh, I'm, um, my parents are from Mexico, so I'm from a Hispanic background. And I just had my own like little Uber system happening where um, 
other people are like, well, why didn't you just like call an Uber? And I was like, why would I call an Uber? Like I just coordinated it to where it worked with everybody's schedule. And my dad would drop me off at church. Maybe my sister would pick me off after work or whatever I needed to do. So I think that was probably the, the hardest part for me in the beginning stages of the recovery was just a little bit loss of independence and needing to rely on other people to kind of step in as caregivers in a way. You brought up a good saying earlier where you, uh, following your diagnosis, you were basically thrown into a world of new cancer terminology and phrases. So what advice would you give to someone newly diagnosed to ask or prepare for speaking with their primary care provider or um, oncologist? Oh yeah, like um, always having like your little notebook, <laughs> take notes and having somebody, if you're able to like have somebody come with you to the appointment because what they hear might be different than what you hear. Like even with the phone call from my thoracic surgeon, I was like cancer cells. I texted my sister and I said, she said, I have cancer cells. My sister said, you know what that means, right? And still, I had kind of a little bit of blinders where I was like, well, she didn't say that. So and I was like, okay, sure. And again, I was in that little denial phase. So definitely, um, and no question is a silly question. The silliest question is the question that you don't ask and you go home thinking about and thinking about. So, and your doctors are more than like they're, they're not happy that you're in the situation. They would have rather not met you under these circumstances, um, but they want the best for you. And if you have a good medical team, um, you're gonna know, you're gonna know that their intention is always for you to have the best outcome. Whatever route they're suggesting or options that they're putting forth, they're always, their end goal is for you to live a long life, for you to survive, surpass this diagnosis. And so if you ever have a feeling that you're not making that connection with your doctor, maybe you should go get a second opinion because you should have a good relationship with your medical team. You should, should feel comfortable enough to ask them anything and know that they're gonna give you the best answer they have. If not, they're gonna look for an answer and see what suits you and your your situation. After receiving your diagnosis, how willing were you to share your diagnosis with other people? Did you experience any like hesitancy or any, did you feel like awkward sharing it or things of that sort? Yes, it was very awkward. And again, uh, I come from a Hispanic background and it's very taboo to talk about your medical history. And so it was like, okay, you had cancer. And I have a few like different generational relatives where I was like, okay, well you had, you had cancer, you and I, you had surgery, but it's done, it's over, close that book. Like they don't, they didn't understand how I delved into the advocacy world. They're like, you don't have it anymore. Why are you still stuck on there? Like you need to leave it. And I was like, well, it's not for me. I got like the silver, I got lung cancer on a silver platter is honestly what I feel like I got from receiving this diagnosis after a car accident because 
otherwise I don't know when I would have been exhibiting symptoms at what stage I would have gone to the ER and who knows if I would have had um, a mutation and so I definitely feel like a year after <laughs> a year after um, my surgery it was when I was like okay I need a I need to use my story I need to change the stigma because yeah even when I share the story now um, people might still ask me to this day I mean I'm pretty my license plate is a personalized license plate and people will ask me, what does your license plate mean? And that's kind of like an opening to me sharing my story because it's connected to my, my diagnosis. And then they'll be like, oh, oh, I didn't know you had lung cancer. And of course it's not like if I tattooed something on me that says lung cancer survivor. The story has to come organically. Like I'm not shoving it in people's faces either. Um, at the beginning, it was really hard. I started going to the cancer two weeks after my surgery is when it hit me mentally. And I realized I needed to talk to others that had undergone the same diagnosis, similar story. And so I looked for a lung cancer support group and I Googled lung cancer support group in the Phoenix area. I found a lung cancer support group with the cancer support community, Arizona, and I went there for my first time in August of 2016. And the first time I shared that I was a lung cancer survivor with a room full of strangers, I couldn't voice that without, I think I, I stated earlier, I'm pretty emotional and sentimental without just like sobbing. And it was just like, um, I could barely, say those words and I think after being there for a year and sharing my story I, I came more I became more comfortable with it and so it was my fellow lung cancer survivors that um, gave me the courage and the strength to be able to share my story and unfortunately a lot of them have succumbed to the disease over the last um, six years um, there's only there was like 12 of us <laughs> in 2016. And I think now there's only two of us. So we've lost the majority of the people that I met when I was initially diagnosed. Uh, have you heard about lung cancer screening before? And did you have like any concerns about it? Um, I had, I think, heard of it in passing. I didn't have any concerns about it for me personally, because again, I had in, in passing how I had heard about it was, oh, well, if you've, if you've smoked this long, then you, you're eligible to get screened. And so that's how I had heard about it before. And since I have not smoked, I, I thought it didn't pertain to me. So I didn't put much significance or value into what I had heard in passing regarding it. Thank you. Um, and just wanted to ask your opinion on this. Um, what do you believe are some of the current challenges that the lung cancer community faces? And you might have already touched upon this and, and if so, that's totally fine as well. Can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. 
Yeah, no worries. Um, I was just wondering, uh, in your opinion, what do you believe are the current challenges that the lung cancer community faces? Well, I think due to the stigma, um, we are severely underfunded when it comes to research. And sadly, without the research, we cannot see an increase in survivors, longer term survivors. And so it all kind of like falls within each other, you know, it's kind of like due to one thing, it's like a do the, do the domino effect, honestly. Um, there's that stereo stigma, the stigma associated with it and that causes that we don't get enough funding and then without funding we don't have that high survival rate. For someone who has a loved one who recently was diagnosed with lung cancer, what advice do you have for how they can best support and help them? Um, be there, um, listen to them. I think sometimes our loved ones mean well by offering unsolicited advice. And so sometimes the best support you can give is just be there, be next to someone. And the patient will tell you when they're ready to receive assistance, they'll, they'll voice it. Um, but everything is like, everything just comes at you so much at once, right? And so it can be overwhelming, but just having like that support system, if you can be the designated driver to appointments or what have you, or if you can be the the cancer buddy who takes notes at the doctor's appointments, um, just be present, be present, offer. I know for me, like I had stated before, I, the loss of my independence was really, really difficult for me. And so just having like a friend call me and being like, I'm gonna pick you up for lunch. So take a shower and get ready. Like, I was like, okay, yeah. And so just like offering, like don't necessarily say, what would you like? Well, how can I help you? Be specific, be like, hey, I'm gonna bring you a coffee. Um, I'm gonna come and sit next to you for an hour, half an hour, or be specific, be present. Um, and I think once all the information settles in with the patient, they'll be better able to voice what their needs are. But I think with the shock at the initial diagnosis, everything's overwhelming. And I, I know people like mean well and intend well with the like, if you need anything, let me know. But sometimes it's hard to come and ask for that help. But if somebody calls you and tells you, hey, I'm gonna pick you up, I'm taking you to lunch, so. Um, and if they don't wanna go to lunch, they're gonna tell you, I don't wanna go to lunch, but thank you, you know, so. It's been awesome to hear about how you've really been adamant and determined to return to your life before your diagnosis as much as you can and as fast as you can as you mentioned and so what are some words of wisdom you have for people post post lung cancer to be able to achieve the similar a similar goal and try to get as close to their life pre-cancer as much as they can 
Yes. So as close to their life pre-cancer, that, that is a great, great little um, sentence there. Um, that they have to remember that their body has been through a lot, whether it was surgery, chemo, radiation, and the side effects will be there for your lifetime. So as much as you would want to bounce back, um, you're gonna learn to modify and see what works for you. And, um, and it's okay if you can't do what you did a month, a week before you, you had surgery or you started chemo. Um, your body is adjusting to everything it's going through as, as you are as well, mentally. Um, and you'll, they'll learn, they'll learn what their limitations are, what modifications they'll incorporate into their daily living. And um, it's okay. It's okay to modify your life a little bit after a cancer, lung cancer diagnosis. If you had to sum up your journey in one sentence, what would it be? I feel like my life is pretty great um, with or without the cancer diagnosis. Like I said previously, um, I definitely feel like I got lung cancer on a silver platter and I'm trying to use that um, to change the outcome of future lung cancer diagnoses. But lung cancer taught me <laughs> how to live life in a different matter, manner, but um, life is what you make of it. So I think that would be my sentence. Life is what you make of it. This wraps up our questionnaire session, um, but thank you so much, Giovanna, for taking time out of your day to share your story with us. Um, it really means a lot. Um, now I would like to open the floor for our participants to ask you any questions they have um, regarding you or your story, um, and if you feel comfortable answering them. So if you guys would like to ask Giovanna a question, please put it in the chat or feel free to unmute. question that um, someone submitted to me. They ask, um, do you have any advice for people looking to get involved in the lung cancer community? Um, yes, so I would say it's your own comfort level. Like you can start locally or you can go nationally. There's a lot of, and I work, I, I try not to link myself to one organization over another because I feel like at the end, we all have the same goal. We're all trying to change the future of lung cancer. And so um, I was, <laughs> I don't know if this is good or bad, but in Arizona, and I'm so glad that you were able to work with Senator Olson. I've met with her as well, but um, 
in Arizona, anything that had the word lung cancer associated with it, I was on it. And so whether it was a 5K, whether it was meeting with the state legislature, um, I was on it. And so as I, I did a lot of work with uh, the cancer support community, that's kind of where I started because that's where I found the lung cancer support group. And it, then from there, I realized that there was the national organization. So I started working with them um, and it got to the point when there was um, a lung cancer connection that was needed. For instance, there is a son's basketball player that had been, that joined the Suns in the fall of 2019 and his mother passed away from lung cancer. And for November, which is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, he was trying to um, join forces with the lung cancer organization and have like a special event with lung cancer survivors. And so uh, the Suns charity reached out to Cancer Support Community. Cancer Support Community reached out to me and they're like, hey, in your lung cancer advocacy, do you have an organization that will want to um, join, do this collaboration with the Suns and with this basketball player? And I was like, yep, I'm on it. So then I contacted um, somebody from one of the national organizations and we were able to make this happen. And whenever there was like a new lung cancer survivor, they're like, I have a new lung cancer survivor. Can you talk to them? And I was like, sure. And so, I feel whether you start small, whether you start big, you'll know what's what's important to you, where you wanna make the impact. And for me, I decided to create an Instagram account. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be like my advocacy account. And that's what it is. And so from there, that's what I share, my advocacy and anything linked to lung cancer. And so I think hopefully that gives you <laughs> some ideas about how you want to approach it but if you're ready to advocate we're ready to have you on our team one of the key facets in the whole this whole process is lung cancer screening which we talk about a lot with people we bring on the podcast so in your eyes how can we best educate the upcoming upcoming generation about lung cancer screening i I think the format, I think this podcast is great because I feel like podcasts are popular as are certain social media. Um, so I think by having the information available to the next generation in the ways that they will access information will make it to where when they get hopefully we get to the point where there is a base age where it's like okay you've reached 30 across the board everybody should get a lung cancer screening and so if we flood if we flood this information through all the platforms that we have hopefully by the time the next generation reaches these milestone ages and we've incorporated these screenings, they'll be more, not only more aware, but more open to undergoing these screenings and knowing that the pros of undergoing the screening 
definitely outweigh the cons of not undergoing the screenings. I think the last question we have is a fun one that doesn't necessarily have to be about lung cancer. The person asks, um, what are you looking forward to most in the next few months? Um, well, I'm still settling. So I moved to, I got married and I moved to Nevada, which is, so I, I still am missing my Arizona, um, but I'm enjoying married life and um, settling in to my new home and my new life and trying to uh, set some roots down here. So um, that's exciting. That's very exciting for me at this, at this point, this season. Wonderful. Um, I actually used to live in uh, Reno, Nevada for a couple of years. So it's a, it's a wonderful place. It just might take some time to, to settle in. So hope you like it there. Yes, thank you. Thank you again, Giovanna, for your time. This wraps up our podcast. We really appreciate your willingness to share your story and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer community. We appreciate the work that you are doing to help raise awareness about lung cancer. And thank you everyone for joining our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alcsi.org. We also encourage you to join our monthly newsletter where we will share updates on upcoming projects within our organization. Please fill out this Google form in chat if you'd like to be added to the mailing list. And before we end this, we also like to offer a brochure highlighting some key information about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. If you find this helpful or know of anyone who might benefit from the information included in the brochure, feel free to share it. And thank you and everyone have a great night. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Ivana. Thank you.